So I want to invite us to spend a little time this morning reflecting on the difference it makes if we consider the past, the present, the future in turn from the perspective of Black women. Here at the top, one might be tempted to ask, wait, isn't history the same regardless of who's telling it? Well, the truth is that history is actually never neutral. If we stop to think about it, there really is no access to a pure, objective perspective, whatever that would even mean. And I'm not saying there's no reality out there. Rather, I'm inviting us to notice that we human beings, we're always observing reality from some particular point of view. Two or more people can even be observing essentially from the same place, the same thing. And I I suspect you can think of multiple examples in your life and notice significantly different details depending on their social locations, their respective gender, race, class, age, ability, religion, sexual orientation, and more. That all creates a matrix that, that affects how we see the world. As the saying goes, we don't simply see the world as it is, we see the world as we are. It affects what aspects we notice. As a result of these and other related factors, history is always being told from some perspective, even if that perspective is not explicitly acknowledged. Every time a story is told, choices are constantly being made about what details to emphasize, which to set aside, and sometimes which to ignore, censor, or repress. Let me get more specific about what I mean. If you sign up for a class on African-American history, you know that the perspectives and experiences of Black people are probably going to be emphasized. Likewise, if you, you know what the focus will be if you sign up for a class on women's history, Latinx history, LGBTQ plus history, Indigenous people's history, I could go on. In each of these cases, there's truth in the advertising, but too many books, too many courses have the seemingly neutral title, history. We're just history, when in many cases they might better be called white, rich, heterosexual, able-bodied male history. Toni Morrison said it this way, in this country, too often American means white and everybody else has to hyphenate. It matters what stories we choose to tell. And regarding those choices, be sure to notice who decides, who benefits. As the saying goes, if you aren't at the table, you might be on the menu. Let's go one level deeper still with a recent example about why it matters that we notice the motivations and the biases of who is writing our history. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but as you may have seen, there's been a lot of recent headlines along the lines of former President Trump being, quote, on the wrong side of history, or history will judge Trump's enablers. But from the perspective of Black women's history, I can only say the jury's still out on that one. Maybe history will, maybe history won't. As we've been exploring and will continue to explore, history is not neutral. History is not necessarily progressive either, as much as we might wish that it were. History doesn't necessarily bend towards justice on its own, and sometimes it shifts tragically toward injustice, oppression, authoritarianism. 
let me share my screen with you to say a little bit more about all of this with some visual aids to accompany. George Orwell's novel, 1984, is, hold on one second. Here we go. You should be seeing this now. Uh, George Orwell's novel, 1984, is one example of what can happen when history is written by fascists. In the totalitarian world of 1984, the Ministry of Truth produces propaganda. What do you do with that, right? When the Ministry of Truth is giving you propaganda, when the Ministry of Peace is waging war, when the Ministry of Love is imprisoning, imprisoning dissidents, right? We're doing this for your own good, right? Because we love you so much, we're gonna put you in jail for dissenting speech. Along similar lines, the regime's gaslighting slogan in 1984 is that war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. Such claims are ludicrous on their face, of course, but that's the point. Being forced to act like we believe obvious lies is hugely damaging to our mental health, as I think many people have experienced over the last few years. We've all just been experiencing a lot of gaslighting of late. As Orwell writes in the quote that has um, stuck with me most strongly from 1984, the heresy of heresies was common sense. The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. That common sense was just obviously true becomes heresy. Uh, when authoritarians are in control. Being forced to accept alternative facts as reality is what happens when Big Brother and the Thought Police are in charge of writing the history books. And here's the point that I want to stress as we prepare to explore the much more emancipatory example of Black women's history. In this country and in other places around the world that have experienced or danced with rising authoritarianism, leaders have been playing with fire regarding how history is told. There are many examples I could name. I will limit myself to just one of the most recent and poignant. The 1776 report uh, called itself a guide to, quote, restoring patriotic education. And this is for your own good. Patriots will like this. And you're unpatriotic if you don't like the 1776 report. It's a description that could have come right out of Orwell's 1984. This report was released by the White House last month precisely on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a holiday all about telling U.S. history as a story of widening circles of inclusion. In contrast, the 1776 report uh, is criticizes the, a way of telling U.S. history from a Black perspective, specifically targeting influential historical works, such as the New York Times' Pulitzer Prize-winning 1619 Project. They're specifically saying, do not tell U.S. history starting in 1619. Tell it starting in 1776. And it explicitly criticizes Howard Zinn's book, A People's History of the United States, that tells America's story from the perspective of America's women factory workers, African-Americans, Native Americans, working poor, and immigrant laborers. So as we prepare to consider a Black women's perspective on history, on the past, present, and then future, I want to highlight that it really does matter how we learn U.S. history. Studies have shown, for example, that Black and Latino teenagers who were given a chance to read excerpts of Howard Zinn's People's History, they reported a greater willingness to participate in protests, voting, 
campaigning for political candidates, much more so than those who only read a more traditional text like the 1776 report wants you to read. Although those texts did not affect how white students intended to participate in the political process, it did make white students more likely to report that people of color have made significant contributions to U.S. history. In other words, who is represented and how in our school curriculums affects how our young people think about their role within U.S. democracy, and those young people grow up to be adults in our in citizens. The good news is that the new administration promptly removed the 1776 from the White House website, but there's no guarantee that would happen if a different set of folks remained in charge of setting standards for our history courses. And there are still a lot of terrible history textbooks out there approved at the state level for use in public schools that I do not have time to get into those details right now. My point is just to encourage all of us to be skeptical whenever you hear someone just sort of say, oh, they're on the wrong side of history or history will judge them. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Again, so much depends on who is writing the history books and the extent to which we the people do or do not work together to bend that arc of history toward peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all. And when I think about telling recent U.S. history from a Black woman's perspective, I need to take the risk of doing so truthfully and transparently, even when these truths can sometimes be quite hard to hear for some. So here's an example of what that can look like from the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, author, activist, and senior minister at the innovative um, Middle Collegiate Church in New York City. Her comments on the recent impeachment verdict was, acquitted like a Jim Crow jury. Notice that she's doing more than just kind of being in just the present moment, condemning cowardice, condemning nihilistic will to power, as important as that is. She is bringing in a his historic depth of the past to her prophetic critique, reminding us that this recent trial was about so much more than one person's guilt or innocence. It's about systems and structures that have been in place a long time that have created a pattern. That's what that Tuesday night study that Jen and I are leading us through is all about. It's about institutional change. How do we change our systems and structures to move from a bias toward white supremacy and more toward um, a, a bias that in, is for a multicultural um, diversity? So a Black woman's historical perspective reminds us that this verdict is only the most recent in a very long line of Jim Crow trials in which so many obviously guilty white men have gone free and so many obviously innocent people of color have gone to jail. So keep the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis in mind because we're going to come back to her in a few minutes at the end of the sermon. To share just briefly about my own process, one reason I wanted to bring up the 1776 report and why I was so disturbed by it is that the I was raised in South Carolina with a version of history that primarily centered the experience of powerful white men, and a significant turning point in my own understanding of history came two decades ago when I first read precisely Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. And in more recent years, I've been learning a lot from the revisioning American history story produced by our own, uh, the, the Unitarian Universalist Association's own Beacon Press, who regularly puts out incredible books. 
And over the past few years, I've preached previous sermons about the first four books in this series. We looked at a queer history of the United States and a disability history of the United States, an indigenous people's history of the United States, and an African-American and Latinx history of the United States. And although all those books are fairly short and accessible, they're also increasingly coming out with shorter and even more accessible young people's versions of all of these books, which are really wonderful as well. So check out those sermons in our online archive, read the books for yourself, either the full or the young people's versions, get them for people in your life that may appreciate them, all depending on your time and interest. There's a sixth book in the series. I don't know how many they're going to eventually make, but there's another one coming out near the end of this year, an Afro-Indigenous history of the United States, the first intersectional history of Black and Native American struggling for freedom in this country. So I look forward to sharing about that book with you sometime, probably next year. As Beacon Press said in response to the 1776 report, we don't need more, quote, Orwellian patriotic histories. We need more radical histories. Radical meaning getting to the root of things, and radical is a revolutionary. So as we continue into our journey through the past, present, and future from the perspective of Black women, I'll begin with the past by sharing with you just a few highlights from the fifth book in this series, A Black Women's History of the United States by Dana Barry. She's a history professor and associate dean at the University of Texas at Austin, and Kaylee Gross, who's a history professor at Rutgers University. In previous years, um, we've done a number of Sunday services focused on specific Black women in history. We've looked at turn over the years at Rosa Parks, at Gwendolyn Brooks, Lorraine Hansberry, Octavia Butler, Harriet Tubman. We've done services on each of them individually. And on my short list of Black women that we will very likely do future Sunday services on, not limited to this, but Ella Baker, Ida B. Wells, Fannie Bohamer, Dorothy Pittman Hughes, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper that we just heard about in the story. Look forward to telling you more about all of them. Indeed, next week, our Sunday service again will be focused on Odetta, that wonderful, powerful singer-songwriter from the Civil Rights Movement. For now, I'll share with you just a few highlights of this important recent book. Earlier, I mentioned the New York Times' 1619 project led by African-American journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, which invites us to notice that the story of U.S. history, it's just different if you begin the telling at 1776 with the American War for Independence compared to if you tell it as beginning in 1619 when the first enslaved Africans uh, arrived in Virginia. Among other things, starting the story in 1619 emphasizes all the people who remained unfree on the other side of the U.S. War for Independence. And as much as I continue to admire the importance of the 1619 Project, again, check that out this Saturday at 3 if you want to go deeper into that. My biggest takeaway from this new book with Beacon Press is that it expands the frame even further to explore the history of Black women in this land before 1619. When I saw that chapter title, I thought, all right, you have my attention. And I was fascinated to learn, for example, about Isabel de Olvera. In the year 1600, more than 400 years ago, she was part of a Spanish expedition that explored present day New Mexico, Arizona, and Florida. Before embarking, we have a fascinating record of her petition to the mayor of Mexico asking for protection. In her words, quote, I have reason to fear that I may be annoyed by some individual since I am of mixed race. Her father was from Africa. Her mother was a member of the ind an indigenous tribe of this land. 
She was born a free person and lived free her whole life. And she was requesting an affidavit so that she would remain free. Uh, she wanted the affidavit to say that she was free and not bound by marriage or slavery. Her closing three word sentence is powerful. I demand justice. She did, by the way, get her affidavit. There are various other references to black women in this land before 1619, most of them unnamed or part of fragmentary documents. Even though the records are partial, though, they're fascinating and they make a difference in how history is understood. While we certainly need to tell the story of the brutal middle passage uh, that began in 1619, it's also powerful to tell this earlier part of the story of free black women seeking justice and living their lives in this land before 1619. Now, before uh, I also want to get us to uh, Black women's perspective on the present and future, I'm going to fast forward really significantly from the year 1600 and limit myself to just two other examples because we got to get on with things. First, I appreciated being reminded of the inspiring story of Alice Coachman, who was born in 1923 in rural Georgia, one of the middle children of 10 siblings. Her father always said that daughters should be, quote, dainty, sitting on the front porch. That's what she heard her whole childhood. But Alice was just drawn to sports, even though they were considered mainly for boys at the time. Nevertheless, she persisted. And in 1948, she not only qualified for the London Olympics, she also set a new high jump record of five feet, six inches. Moreover, she was the only woman on the U.S. track and field team to bring home the top honor that year, which also made Alice the first Black woman to receive an Olympic gold medal. To trace just a few other path-breaking firsts from recent decades, I have to mention the inevitable, the inimitable Shirley Chisholm, who in 1969 became the first Black woman elected to the United States Congress. If you haven't watched Mrs. America and you have Hulu, please watch that miniseries for the sections on Shirley Chisholm alone, Mrs. America. Uh, relatedly, in 1992, Carol Mosley Braun became the first Black woman elected to the U.S. Senate and coming right up into recent history, Kamala Harris became the first Black and South Asian woman vice president. Looking to the near future, President Biden has promised to nominate the first Black woman to the Supreme Court when a vacancy opens. At the risk of naming names, I'm sure he's not listening, but I'm looking at you, Justice Breyer. It's time. And although there's much more to say about a Black woman's perspective on the past, I want to take what we've learned and apply it to the present and the future. To again take the risk of being direct, there is an argument to be made that if you want to know, would I have been an ally to Harriet Tubman? to Rosa Parks, to other Black women activists throughout history had I been alive in their day, the best test available to us to know if that would be true is to notice the extent to which you are or aren't an ally to Black women activists in our day, from Stacey Abrams to the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, all three of whom are radical Black women. Turning to Stacey Abrams, she has written and spoken about three major things we need to do. Uh, we can come to see what Stacey Abrams is talking about as a Black woman's perspective on the present that is deeply informed by a Black woman's perspective on history. She says we need to do three things. One, overhaul the filibuster in the U.S. Senate, 
which allows a minority of senators who, rec who represent 41.5 million fewer people in the Senate majority to block progress favored by most Americans. If you really want to get into the details, I recommend the book Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. What's happening in the Senate right now is not what the founders of this country intended, and I appreciate Stacey Abrams and others lifting that up. She recommends second, passing the For the People Act. You know, once we get rid of the filibuster, let's do some things. Pass the For the People Act to protect and expand voting rights, fight gerrymandering, and reduce the influence of money in politics. All those things we were talking about all last year with you, you the vote. The pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to restore the full protections of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And, and the Protecting Our Democracy Act to constrain the corruption of future presidents who deem themselves above the law. Finally, grant DC statehood and self-determination for Puerto Rico. I would personally add expand seats on the United States Supreme Court, but starting with Stacey Abrams's top three priorities is a great start for our UU fifth principle of democracy. Now, if you'll stick with me for one final step, let's keep in mind everything we've learned about a Black women's perspective on the past and on the present and consider how that might lead us into a better future for all. As our guide, allow me to introduce you to Trisha Hersey. For those who don't already know her work, Hersey founded the Knapp Ministry in 2016. She calls herself the Knapp Bishop. But let me hasten to add that she is about a whole lot more than 20 minute power naps to increase productivity. Those are all well and good, I take them myself, but that's perhaps the opposite of what she's about. From the perspective of black women's history, Hersey invites us to reflect deeply and subversively about rest as resistance to the 24 seven nonstop, what she calls grind culture, you know, just grinding it out, just keep going past exhaustion. The relentless demands undergirding what bell hooks has called the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. In Hersey's words, grind culture wants to keep going no matter what. And she says, I sit my ass down and daydream. The answer is no until you're rested enough to give an authentic and whew, yes, I do have energy for that. Among many things she's trying to accomplish, she's trying to subvert the idea that being well rested is laziness. And it's important to realize that she isn't writing from nowhere, rather she's writing from a deep immersion in the tradition of black liberation theology. Hersey holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Public Health and a Master of Divinity from Emory University's Candler School of Theology. She's also an artist and a public theologian who has transformed many public spaces. This was all easier before the pandemic. She's looking forward to getting back to it. So she transforms public spaces into sacred safe spaces for attendees to publicly nap and benefit from the healing revolutionary power of sleep. I'll show you a few more examples of her live public art installations. Here's one, another, show you two more, and one more. The Knapp Bishop challenges us to consider that because, precisely because, oppressing Black bodies has been at the center of 400 years of enslavement, Jim Crow segregation. It was, it was Black bodies that couldn't use that bathroom, sit at that lunch counter, you know, drink from that water fountain, go to that school. 
So because Black bodies have been the, the center of enslavement, of Jim Crow segregation, and the ongoing new Jim Crow of racially biased mass incarceration, you know, we're not done with any of this yet. So sometimes people ask, how long do we have to talk about all this? I don't know. Let's stop doing it first before we... Uh, so she says, precisely because of that, well-rested Black bodies will be one key part of creating a new way of being in the world that centers liberation, equality, and justice. In her words, a Black woman in a rested state is a radical act. As we explored a few weeks ago in regard to prison abolition, another world is possible, but it requires systemic change. It's about so much more than how much sleep any one of us get. That's important too. It's really about systemic change. As Audre Lorde said, you can't dismantle the master's house using the master's tools. It will require things like pointing us toward poetry, as Jen wrote, read us about in the spoken meditation, that poetry is not optional. Along these lines, it's important to tell you just a little bit about Hersey's backstory. She was inspired to create the Nat Ministry during three years. She spent deep diving into the past. She spent three years in seminary as a graduate assistant in Emory's um, African-American archives. And so from being deeply immersed in historical documents, she learned a tremendous amount in detail about the daily lives of her enslaved ancestors who were so often treated, this, these are Hersey's words, as quote, human machines. She says they were working 20 hours a day, she came to realize. Women were giving birth and then the midwife came to take the baby and the mother was forced to return to work the same day. She says, that shook me to my core being a mother and having given birth myself. She said, I could barely lift my head up after I gave birth. The details that people usually gloss over about enslavement became important to me. They haunted me, and it led her to ask, what would my ancestors ha have experienced or been able to do if they were allowed a space to rest? Think about all those incredible uh, songs we listen to, for those of you who are here from Black women. You know, what, what have we been robbed of because of uh, people that were not given the space and freedom to create? To quote one of Hersey's most powerful one-liners about how this can apply to our lives today, people need a nap so that they can wake up. She means, of course, she means that on multiple levels, including consciousness raising. There's so much more to say about the profound implications of Hersey's nap ministry, and you can learn a lot. I really recommend her Instagram. If any of you are on Instagram, scroll back through her Instagram over the years. Really great stuff. For now, I'll move toward my conclusion with three quick posts from a recent interview, three quick quotes from a recent interview she did. She said, our goal is to uplift sleep deprivation as a racial and social justice issue. She said, I realized I had been navigating decisions from a space of toxic urgency, toxic urgency. I began to experiment with a radical notion of deliberately and forcefully slowing down. My rest practice became a place of solace, restoration, resistance, reparations, and connection. The refusal to grind thus became a political act. And in her third and final quote, notice how she's going to bring in the perspective of Black women's history and emphasize that she's calling us to systemic change far beyond individual self-care. It's about so much more than that. She says, we exist in a culture that supports sleep deprivation. We have been brainwashed by capitalism to work at a machine level pace and to equate our worth with how much we produce. 
The same engine that drove millions of enslaved people into the forced terror of brutal label on brutal labor on plantations is the same engine driving grind culture today. Rest, as you'll see in your screens, is a form of resistance because it disrupts and pushes back against capitalism and white supremacy. It says, no, I am enough now. I am not a machine, right? I'm a human being. Remember that word human? It was on the shirt when we heard that word, that song shine on. Our collective rest and radical care will save us and will be the foundation for a new world rooted in liberation for all. She concludes, we will rest. It's a command from the Nat Bishop, right? So I'm excited to see where this Nat ministry goes in the future. And for now, here's one final slide from the Nat Bishop about what rest can look like. It can look like closing your eyes just for 10 minutes. It can look like staying just a little longer in that nice warm shower. Remember all that stuff from Texas makes us don't do not take the things for granted, right? Meditating on a couch for 20 minutes, daydreaming by staring out of a window, sipping tea before bed in the dark, slow dancing with yourself to slow music, attending or tuning in to a sound bath, just letting vibrations hit you. Uh, a sun salutation, so just doing a yoga pose, a 20-minute time nap, praying, creating a small altar. Now, here at the end, I want to finally loop us back to the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis. Early, we considered her powerful um, reflection on current events from a historical perspective, but even more importantly, that's not her primary focus. Her primary focus is bringing together diverse coalitions to co-create a better, more hopeful future. So for those of you who are curious, having heard all this, like, so what do we do from here? How do we do this stuff? How do we partner together for collective liberation? I highly recommend the annual Revolutionary Love Conference. You can you could Google Revolutionary Love Conference. It'll come right up. Um, it, Lewis has been hosting it for many years now. It'll be fully online this year. It's in mid-April. A number of you, as well as many other UUs and other progressives, have attended in the past. I know a number of you already, including our intern minister, Jen, already planned to attend this year. So you can be in touch with Jen as well. And so, you know, there'll be a group kind of meeting before and debriefing, you know, during and after. And it's usually in New York City, so this is a really good chance, though I bet it'll probably be always online for the future, but it can be fun to go in New York, but it's a lot cheaper and easier to do from home. So think about that Revolutionary Love Conference. So uh, in conclusion, the stories we tell matter. And if we choose to live into stories of revolutionary love, we can learn from the past to transform the present and co-create a better future for us all. And regarding how we might come together for collective liberation in which we all get free, I'll give the last word to the Black poet and activist Amanda Gorman, who also inspired our beautiful introit earlier on Be the Light. She says, for there was always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. In that spirit of revolutionary love, let's sing together that poignant African-American spiritual, there is more love somewhere.